Well, good morning again. So if you're open for somebody else, I'm sorry to disappoint. But it's great to be with you. Um, if you're somebody that, if you're new to Crosspoint, my name is Jamie. It's my great privilege to be one of the pastors here. It's my joy to be able to open up God's word uh, with you all in this journey through the great book of John. All right, and so just really excited. Thank you for bringing the church into this space this morning. Thank you for bringing the church into your home if you're gathered with us online. And we, this morning, get the incredible opportunity to, in our journey through the book of John, in this series called Come and See, where there's this invitation to come and to meet the real Jesus as God would have it in our journey. We are in John chapter 20, which means we're in the resurrection account, which means on November 14th, 2021, happy Easter, all right? So we're going to celebrate the reality of the resurrection. I realize the calendar is a little bit uh, different than, than normal, but the tomb is still empty. Jesus is ruling and reigning, and we want to celebrate that reality. We want to look at that. As an aside, I'm super excited about the resurrection and communicating that and just getting to dive into this. I was also excited Friday night at the state swim meet for my oldest daughter as the Winter Park High School girls took second. They were state runner-ups, which was very exciting. Um, yes, there you go. Um, and that means I was the crazy dad screaming on the sideline of the pool. And so if you see me taking more sips of water, the voice is cutting out. I'm excited about the resurrection, but I also kind of blew up my vocal cords on Friday night. So bear with me um, in that. But this morning, we are in John chapter 20. We're going to look at the first 23 verses. If you brought a Bible, please follow along. You don't need to hear my thoughts or opinions. You need to hear from God and God's, God's word. And so... Another way you can do that is go to cplife.church on your phone, and you'll see a thing there that says sermon notes. Click that, and any of the, like the text we're in this morning for you to read and follow along, any of the things we put up on the slides this morning uh, will be there as well, and there's space to actually be able to take notes. But let me read for us. This is God's word, John chapter 20, this account of the resurrection. Hear God's word. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. And at that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. And stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb, saw the linen clothes lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in and saw and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. Verse 11, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? And who is it that you're seeking? And supposing he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. 
And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. Verse 19. While it, when it was evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And after saying this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This is God's word for us. And so church, as we get into this this morning, I want to look at the chaos that is present here in these opening verses. I want to look at this theme that is running through the book of John, that there's this new creation that's bursting forth right here, right now. And it starts with the empty tomb of Jesus. And yet, it's not for us to just sit and take that in, but rather to see and to embrace. If you're in Christ, there is a commissioning, there's an invitation, there's an offer to participate. Like God wants you and I in the game, participating in his mission. So that's what we're gonna look at this morning. But let's start with this, that there's this, there's this chaos that's taking place in the first 11 verses. Now, we, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you're familiar maybe with this text, you've heard this account somewhere, like we know where this is going, right? Like we're like, oh yeah, the, the tomb is empty, Jesus is written, risen. But if we can hit pause for a moment and just realize in these opening verses on this particular morning, this first day of the week, while it's still dark, there's no rejoicing at this point. I mean, this is heavy, weighty, sorrow, confusion, pain, agony, wondering like what in the world just happened. They thought that Jesus was the king of kings. They thought that he was ushering in the rule and reign of God. They thought perhaps the Romans were gonna be overthrown. And then Friday happened and Jesus was nailed to a Roman execution device, this cross, and he died. A spear was thrust through his side as we looked at all of that last week. And so in this moment, when Mary Magdalene, when she shows up, this is not yet elation and rejoicing, right? It's not even that when Peter and John, who is the other disciple that we learn of in this, that run to the tomb. They don't learn and connect the dots really till later in the day when Jesus shows up to them. There is this chaos. Now, in that one of the things John's doing, just this brilliant account, there are layers upon layers upon layers, and what John is doing is he's telling this story, and he's wanting us to see and to connect the dots, and we talked about this a little bit last week, that imagine being on, like on a web page, and you click a, a link, this hyperlink that takes you somewhere else, and you click another one, and kind of down the, the rabbit hole you go. There are sorts of, in an ancient way, these hyperlinks that are embedded all in here, and so when this says, when these words are spoken, on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. This, my friends, this is a massive hyperlink. This is meant to take us somewhere else and to see what is God up to? Like what is being communicated with just these opening words? Well, there was a first day and it's told of in Genesis chapter one. And on that first day of creation, it says the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And the description is that there's this void there's darkness, there's chaos. That's how the Hebrew people would have understood it. This world of absolute, it's not inhabitable, it's just chaotic and it's dark. And what John is telling us 
And he's been doing this from the opening chapter, from John chapter one. He's saying, there's this story where the old creation had been beautiful for a couple of chapters, Genesis one and two. And then because of sin began to spiral and unravel and go back toward chaos. But God, in his faithfulness, is writing a new story. He's bringing about new creation. And so in all of this, just know, this is a loaded statement. The first day, while it was still dark. So again, we gotta feel this. That, that's what Mary, that's what Peter, that's what John would have felt. It's just chaotic. They're not celebrating anything yet at this point. They are dejected, they're despairing. And so to help us, let me, let me look at three things that are in this these opening verses, all right? And we'll use some alliteration just because, right? Let's talk for a moment about the sprinting, like the running that took place, the scene, right, as they look into the tomb, and then just the heartbreak that's present, the crying, the tears, the sobbing, the sorrow of Mary. And so as I read this, I don't know if you picked up on this, I think it's fascinating. Like in the midst of this resurrection account, what is gonna, what we're being, you know, we're being readied for is like this, it's, greatest day ever. In the reality, Paul would tell us, right, as he writes to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15, listen, if the resurrection didn't happen, we are just fools. We are wasting our, our time. Like, we, sure, you're welcome to hang out in this place, but this is a colossal, just stupid thing that we're doing, right, to be here if there's no resurrection. But if the resurrection is true, and I believe it to be true, it literally changes everything. And so in this account, what's so fascinating it's the greatest news ever. It's the biggest thing to ever happen. It's what all of us need. There's also this really interesting detail that Mary Magdalene goes back and she tells Peter, and it says the other disciple, which is, which is John, all right? Verse four, the two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Just because I think God has a sense of humor and just the humanity of this account, right? John, who's writing this account, is like, hey, greatest day ever. I also won the race. <laughs> Let it be known for all of human history. Tomb is empty. And Peter's slower than me. All right? I mean, if you don't believe me, like, why does he put this in, like, later on in that section? Verse 8, the other disciple, which is John, who had, just in case you forgot, who had reached the tomb first, then also went in, right? And so it's just loaded with what I think is kind of comical. But beyond that, we'll talk about this more in just a moment. Yes, it's maybe humorous, and yes, I think it's kind of funny, and maybe there's bragging rights. So yeah, yeah, tomb's empty, Jesus, yes and amen to that, but, but Peter, like, I, I smoked you on the run there, right? Like, I don't know how that conversation went down, but if you're just making this story up, like, that sort of, that level of detail, it's like, what, why is that all in there? I mean, again, it just, it lends some credibility to this. Like, why is that recorded? So you've got this sprinting, you've got this race, and then you also have the three characters that are there, that, were, that are Mary Magdalene, you've got Peter, and you've got John, all at various points look. Like they look into the tomb, they're seeing things. But the, the Greek words that are being used for John and for Mary are different than the one for Peter. So John and Mary, the, the language that's being used is, is more in an observation sense. They peered into the tomb, like, oh, yeah, his body's not there. The, the, the tomb actually is empty, right? It's just at a very basic level. Their eyes see, they're processing, and their brain is telling them, like, okay, it, it's empty. Jesus is not in this, this place. But for Peter, the language is a little bit different. It says this, then following him, Simon Peter also came, 
he entered the tomb, and here's this word for saw, the linen cloths lying there. And when it tells us this for Peter, and I think this is what's so important, and as we get into the last section about our commissioning as a church, we want to be a church community that encourages people to do what Peter is doing in this moment. When it says that he saw the linen cloths, the word that's being used there is where we get our word theorize. So with that, there's this idea, like Peter is he's contemplating, he's pondering, he's certainly confused, he certainly has questions, like he's trying to connect all, he's like, what is happening? I'm sure he's recollecting some of the words of Jesus, and he's trying to like, how does this make sense? What is going on? Like, what, it, it, did somebody, is there a grave robber? Did somebody steal the body of Jesus? He's like considering these matters. And as an encouragement church, we want to be, and if you're new to Crosspoint, let me encourage you, like the Bible invites this sort of contemplation. It invites this sort of theorizing that we would, like Peter, say, hey, let me look into this. It's why we've entitled this series, Come and See. I mean, that phrase shows up throughout the book of John, and it's that, it's like what Peter's doing. It's like, come and see. Will you consider these matters? There's no more important thing to consider than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like, that's the thing. You might have questions about, like, well, how many animals fit on the ark and all, all the things, right? They're all super important. But the big thing to wrestle through is the resurrection. Because if the resurrection didn't happen, then who cares about all your other Bible questions, right, or my Bible questions? Like, this is the thing. This is what we need to deal with. And Peter has this posture of like, all right. Like it says, he saw the linen, and it's just creating all sorts of questions. And that's beautiful. Like, don't shy away from that. I love the way Tim Keller in the book, The Reason for God, says this. Because if you maybe you've got your questions and your doubts, and maybe you're feeling like, well, I've been a Christian for a long time, but I still wonder, I still have these things. Like, am I a terrible Christian? Am I like JV and not varsity? Like, how do I, you know, how do I move up? Like, let me encourage you. Questions are really helpful. And I do believe there's good reason, like the answers that are provided in the scripture, there's, there's, there's a certainty, a confidence I believe that we can have, but also know this, there's this invitation to consider these matters. So hear, hear this, these words from the reason for God. A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. And so the question for all of us is like, hey, will you ponder, will you consider? Well, the reality is you don't owe me an answer, right? But there is you do owe that to God, like to give an account. Like, do you believe the account that is here? Because everything hinges on the resurrection. And I think there's a few things just to put out there if this could be, be helpful. I think there's many good reasons to believe the resurrection actually historically happened. All right. And there's different ways we've talked about this. And most every Easter, if you've been a part of Crosspoint for years, like some of this will be familiar. But I think it's good. Let's just revisit these things. Because for one, it might help answer some of your questions, but also... You have a neighbor, a family member, a coworker, a friend, somebody you care deeply for that might have questions. And this isn't like the be all, end all, just like, all right, 
you just like regurgitate what I said and it's just like expect that there be no more questions. No, but these are helpful things to consider. And so for one, again, let's, let's talk about the, the linens that are spoken of. Let's talk about legends, and we'll, we'll talk about the ladies that are present, or the lady that is present here in Mary Magdalene for a moment, all right? So for one, the, these linens, it says the one that would have covered Jesus' face, like it's all just folded up and placed nicely. If there had been a grave robber, and those did exist, I don't think they're taking the time to be like, hey, before we go, let's make sure we put everything back neat and tidy, right? Like if I... Someone burglarizes your house, right? They break in, you're, you're not there, and they notice, oh, your bed's not made. I don't think they're generally going to be, let me make the bed before we go and after we take their TV and their stereo, right? Like, that's not generally how it goes. Like, how do you account for that? Like, how is this all put together? As I said with even the account of, you know, Peter out, or, sorry, uh, John outrunning Peter to the, the empty tomb, there's a way that history is written and recorded, and there are ways that there's like legends and stories, all right, kind of these epic legends that they get told and we pass down from generations. There are wonderful stories, and people will be like, oh, this is a great story, this legend. Well, the way legends are told and the way history is written like, are very, very different. This does not align with how legends, like even people who don't believe anything about Christianity, they don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, they don't believe like he rose from the dead, they would at least say this. All right, how this is written is recorded in a way that's meant to communicate history, like something historical has happened. And then in regards to Mary Magdalene, this lady who shows up at the tomb, and then the other accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb are women, the first ones that are, that are told to go and tell the disciples, because yeah, Peter and John were here, right? And it says John looked in and he believed, but I don't think it's a belief in the resurrection, resurrected Christ at this point, it's a belief like, oh yeah, I confirm the tomb is empty because Jesus has to show up to them hours later. And that's when they begin to understand. But historically in that time and place, there's, it's so significant that Mary Magdalene here is the first one to the tomb and the first one that Jesus interacts with and the first herald of the good news. She gets, there's this handoff that's taking place. Jesus is like, I've risen from the dead, here you go, Mary, go and tell. Now, if you were making this up, you would never, back then, a couple thousand years ago, you would have never, ever, ever had the first account be a woman. A woman's testimony in court was not considered valid, all right? So if there was something that was taking place and a woman observed it, she would not ever be called into the courtroom and say, hey, tell us what you saw, because she was just believed to be like a lunatic and a liar. They literally wouldn't trust anything that a woman said. So that's the culture when this is being written. And so if you're making this up, why in the world? If you want this to be credible, you would have never, ever, ever thought of making the first eyewitness a woman unless that's just how it played out, unless it's actually historically true, unless that's actually how God in his grace and his provision showcased that as this way to help us understand and to believe and to also showcase secondarily the honor that he bestows upon Mary Magdalene as we look at her story a bit more and the honor he bestows upon all women and the way that would have flipped everything upside down in that time, in that place. And so it tells us then as well, not only these things that we're looking at and we're seeing, but Mary, it says, stood, out, stood outside the tomb and she's crying and she's sorrowful and she's brokenhearted. And here's what I know. 
I don't know the particulars of every single person's story that's here, but I know this, if you've been alive for like more than five minutes, right? There's pain, there's hardship, there's trial, there's difficulty. And if you felt like you were like, oh, I was kind of skating through life relatively unscathed, then just 2020, right? I mean, like just all the things, like it's hard and it's difficult. And there's this encouragement here. Like we're gonna turn the corner and as Jesus interacts with Mary, but just there's this, this observation here. Like Mary stood outside the tomb crying and the question becomes like, what are you and I doing with our disappointments? What are we doing with our pain? And the invitation here that we're gonna see from, because she is devastated. This is not a story at this point of elation, of celebration, of enthusiasm. She is brokenhearted. And so she's looking into the tomb, and maybe a way to depict this is, is this, and we all feel this, right? We have these hopes, dreams, aspirations, expectations, and then reality, all right? So maybe a way to think about it is this, right? So that's all the things we hope for, we pray for, we plan for, we dream about, and then there's reality. And we live and we inhabit this sort of space in between those things, and if we're left on our own, here, here's the reality. If there's no resurrection, I'm just a depressed, like melancholy, just mess of a man, right? That's the truth. And I think everybody, if they're honest, that's the trajectory of all of our lives. Like if there's absolutely like no resurrection, no hope. And so the beauty of this, there's this invitation like Mary who's sobbing, she's crying, she's sorrowful. The empty tomb meets us in those places, and the empty tomb meets us in such a way that God is ministering not only to Mary, but he's ministering to us. And he's telling us you're part of a story. That 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ, which doesn't mean that anything you wanted on your wish list comes true, but the big things, the things that ultimately really do matter, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ because of the empty tomb, that God has ushered us in to this new story, this new creation. So often in life, we deal with the, the pain, right, of things that can be like overpromised, underdelivered. Now, when I think of that, there's two things that come to mind about overpromised and underdelivered. Michigan football, uh, for one, each year, dealing with the pain, all right, always hoping for better. Secondarily, all right, this is very deep, very theological, I think of The Office, all right? Now, if you've ever watched the show The Office, most weeks, most episodes, there is a cringeworthy moment, typically by Michael Scott, who is the boss, um, right? And if you don't know the, this, this story, hopefully this will at least make some sense, but of all the cringeworthy moments in the show that is The Office, there is one that always, like it literally is like, oh, I gotta turn the TV off. Like this is too painful to watch, and yet then I'm also like, okay, turn it back on, because it's just beautiful and terrible all at the same time. And the story is one where Michael Scott, years prior, about 10 years prior, he'd gone to visit a third grade classroom in a very under-resourced neighborhood. And he had promised the kids there. He thought in 10 years he was gonna be a multimillionaire businessman. And he promised these kids, listen kids, if you could rise above your circumstances, if you graduate from high school, I will pay for your college education. Well, the years go by. These kids are all getting ready to graduate, and the school has now called the office seven times to invite Michael in because they want to celebrate him. They want to thank him. You come to find out they've made T-shirts that say Scott's Tots on them, right? They've got a dance routine worked up, and he knows, I don't have the money to do this. 
Like, and so he, go, he finally has to go and just kind of like face reality, right? And he has to go there and he has to deal with the whole presentation. It's just, just, just from bad to worse. And he finally gets up and he's gotta share with them, like, listen, I, I thought I'd have more money. I can't pay for college. But when you go to college, you, you need a laptop. And so the kids kind of are like, well, okay. I mean, tuition would have been nice, but a laptop, at least. And he's like, and then, and then to power that laptop, you need a laptop battery. So he begins to take out laptop battery. Like, that's what he's provided the kids. It just goes from bad to worse, and it's just awful. And in his reflection, as you have this little spot where he talks just to the camera, all right, there's this line, and maybe you remember this. He's like, I have made some empty promises in my life, but hands down, that was the most generous. <laughs> and it's ridiculous and over the top, right? But friends, can I assure you of, of this, right? Like, we may have people that promise us things and underdeliver, all right? We may do that for other people. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Jesus never promised something and then didn't deliver. Genesis 3.15, God said, one day I'm going to send one who will crush the head of the serpent. And Jesus showed up. God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus, who lived a sinless life, who died the death that you and I should have died, who was put into that tomb, and three days later he rose again. Like, that's the story that we're part of. That's why John could write this in Revelation 21, near the end of the scriptures. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God never overpromises and underdelivers. God always comes through. And so when you and I look into the empty tomb and we, like Mary, are sobbing and confused and dealing with the pain and the reality, just know this. For those of us that are in Christ, one day, the God of the universe, it's not that he's gonna remove your tear ducts, it's that he's gonna get so close to you to look into your eyes and say, I'm so glad you're here. I've been waiting for you. And he will wipe the tears away from your eyes. Like, that's the intimacy, that's the closest, that's where this story is heading. And so the chaos leads to new creation. That's what we see in verses 12 to 18. And John has been telling this story from the beginning, cluing us in that there was an original garden, all right? And the original garden had an original gardener, and it was Adam, and Adam failed miserably. He was supposed to steward and to cultivate and to take this garden of Eden and make it everywhere, and he failed. And he didn't believe the promises of God. He believed God somehow was holding out on him. And John is trying to tell us, and we looked at this last week, but let me just read this. John 19, this is the end of the, the account of Jesus' crucifixion. He's taken down off of the cross. And in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. What's John doing? He's trying to tell us, listen, my friends, there was an old creation, but now... In the midst of the chaos and the pain, there's a new life, there's new creation bursting forth right in the midst of this one. And so he tells us, not once, but twice, that they're in this garden, all right? And then Mary has this encounter, all right? She hears this man ask her, hey, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And it tells us, John says this, supposing he was the gardener. This is not incidental or accidental. There's nothing about this that lacks intentionality. This is John's way, this is God's way of cluing us in and saying, for the original Adam, 
the original gardener failed, there is a new garden. There is a new Adam. There is a new gardener, and he will not fail. And as you peer into the empty tomb, let that be a sign of victory of God, of God's own son. And what is happening here in this new creation, there's both a cosmic level that he's going to renew everything, and then there's also a very personal level. And so N.T. Wright, the theologian, says it this way, the message of the resurrection is that this world matters, that the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it is only about me and finding a new dimension in my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world, news which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming hearts. That there's this cosmic renewal that's happening. All the injustice, everything's gonna be set right. What was intended in Genesis 1 and 2 will be our reality, and we're gonna have good work to do, and we're gonna be part of this renewed new heavens and new earth. Like, that's what we're invited into, and that's worth getting excited about, right? And yet, in the midst of the cosmic and the big picture, there's a nearness. And Jesus comes near Mary as she's sobbing, she's sorrowful, she's looking into the tomb, she's bewildered, she's disillusioned, all of the feelings. And Jesus calls to her. And the reality is Jesus calls to you, and he calls to me. And I love this. He simply said, Mary. He said to her, and in that moment, everything clicks for her. She hears Jesus, the Son of God, calling her by name. And friends, as you and I look into our pain and our hurt and all the things that are going on in the world and all the things that trouble us, know that there is a God that comes near. And like he called Mary's name, he calls your name and he calls my name. And all of this Jesus said was gonna play out. Back in John chapter 10, Jesus said, hey, one of the ways you should know me, understand me, is I'm the good shepherd. And he speaks of us as sheep knowing his voice. This plays out here in John 20. So John 10, Jesus says, here's how it's gonna go. And then it comes to fruition. To him the gatekeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. So the question for us is, are you listening to the voice of Jesus? Are you allowing the reality of the empty tomb to inform your disappointments, your shattered dreams, the expectations that you have, and how it differs from reality? Know this, you and I are part of a story of ultimate renewal, that we're resurrection people, and it starts not just someday in the future when Jesus comes back, like you can get in on this now. If you're a Christian, you are right now living out part of the new creation. Yes, there's still brokenness and pain, but our entire perspective shifts because of this reality. There's no empty tomb, we're in despair, we're to be pitied, we're fools. But the tomb is empty and there is hope and there is reason to rejoice. And then Jesus says this, all right, Mary, yes, this is for you at both a cosmic and a personal level, but it's not meant to just be for you. And so what he says is this, go to my brothers and tell them that I'm ascending. Now look at the language here. He calls the disciples, my brothers, for one, 
They rejected him, denied him, ran away, were not there with Jesus in his moment of need, couldn't stay up praying with him when Jesus needed them to. And what does Jesus call them? Brothers. Tell them that I'm ascending to my Father, but notice the language, and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus has made it possible for what is true for him to be true for us, that it's our Father. It's your Father and my Father. It's, it's our God. That we can claim that, like, it's my God, that there's this relationship that Jesus has made possible. And what I love is who Jesus picks. Not only would it have been unheard of for a woman to bear this sort of testimony, but in particular, Mary Magdalene. The gospel writer Luke tells us a bit of her story. So think about this for a moment. Because maybe you're here this morning, like, this sounds amazing, and I'm glad that Jesus achieved peace, but you don't know. You don't know my sins, you don't know my background, you don't know the shame that I still carry, right? Like, I don't know if God, I, I need more time to kind of get my life together before I could be used by God. Do you know, God loves to use the broken. He, the people he chooses to use and uses most powerfully are those that are dialed into their brokenness. Mary Magdalene was not a superstar. She was not the rock star. She was not the person that lived a perfectly, you know, like this, this great life, this obedient life, did all the religious things. Here's, here's her description, right? It says, soon afterward, Jesus went through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. It says, the 12 were with him, and there were some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. And then Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Think about this. this. This is the first eyewitness. So not only is it this woman that, that would have been unheard of in that time, right? They sent the crazy demon-possessed lady. That's who Jesus picked. And not just like, oh, she had a demon. This girl had seven. Oh, you got two demons? Ugh, whatever, I had seven, right? I mean, like, that's, look at the transformation. And Jesus is like, that's who I'm gonna pick. She'll be at the tomb first, and then guess what? She's going to be my herald, because what is she commissioned with? Verse 18, right? It tells us this, and she is, the, she is the one that gets to bring this news. So she went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. So if you're like, I don't know. I don't know if I've got the resume for this. Apparently, this lady would have been possessed by seven demons, like kind of fits the bill for what Jesus was looking for. Like, I think you're good, right? Like he can use any of us. And so we'll close with this. There's this commissioning. We see it in Mary, and we see it as well when Jesus shows up, and he says, peace be with you. And he showed them his hands and his side. It's giving good reason for them to believe. And then a second time, he says, peace to you. Peace be with you. And he says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Jesus says, all right, I was commissioned by the Father. I was sent by the Father. We worship ascending God. And this is John's great commission passage, similar to Matthew, Matthew 28. This call to go and be about this work of seeing disciples made, disciples who make disciples, to see the kingdom of light push back the kingdom of darkness, to see churches planted, to see marriages restored, to see the poor and the widow taken care of, the marginalized, to see this justice reign, to see God's rule and reign in all of our communities and our homes, like to see this, like we get to be part of this. We are a sent people. If you are a follower of Christ, you are a missionary. 
Like, that's part of your new identity. And so you and I are then called to proclaim this peace. And so when it talks there at the end about forgiveness of sins, this can get very confusing because it's like, wait, do I have that power? I'm not God. It's communicating, listen, whenever the gospel is shared, God is saying, like, he is extending his grace and forgiveness of sins to anyone, to the Mary Magdalene's of the world, to you, to me, to anyone. And so how can you and I proclaim this peace? How can we do our part? I'll close with this. There is another beautiful, I would say, hyperlink, something that's embedded in this text. And so if we remember... Mary peers into the tomb, right? And she sees that where they had placed, where Jesus' body should have been, was empty. But what does she see? Where the head of Jesus would have been, she sees an angel. Where the feet of Jesus would have been, she sees another angel. If you were to go and read throughout the Old Testament, particularly like go read, I believe, the Exodus 25, you would begin to read and hear descriptions of God's commands to his people to create this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. And on the top of the Ark, all right, here's a, a, a rendering of this, right? What sits on the top of this, this cover? The cherubim, an angel on one side and an angel on the other side. And that space, that empty space between is the mercy seat. And once a year, this Ark of the Covenant was not placed simply just in the temple. It was placed in the Holy of Holies within the temple. And the high priest was only allowed to go in there once a year. And the high priest would go in there after the lamb was slaughtered and the blood of the lamb would be splashed over the mercy seat in between angel one and in between angel two on the top of the Ark. And this picture that we find here, the reason you and I can proclaim peace, the reason we can have assurance that it's all been taken care of is yes, the empty tomb, and yes to what God has done through his son on the cross. Because that picture, friends, there is the mercy seat with the angel one and the second angel there where the head and the feet of Jesus would have been placed, where his body once was. It's saying he was the once and for all sacrifice. The blood was shed, that is the mercy seat, and now he's gone. And there's no more need for any more sacrifices. This is why the writer of Hebrews would say this in chapter 10. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifice time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, this Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. You sit down when it's finished. He sat down because he had accomplished When he said on the cross, it is finished, he meant it, he did it, he rose again three days later, he would ascend to the heavens, and one day, he is coming back to set everything right, and right now, he is ruling and reigning. He has paid for your sin and my sin, the ultimate mercy seat, the second Adam, the true and better gardener, all of it. We are now part of this new creation. So church, we're going to celebrate that we're going to take some time to, we're going to sing, we're going to enjoy this meal of communion that God has given to us. So let me, let me pray for us. And as I, I'm praying, just be asking the Spirit to be leading you. Like, what is it that you need to repent of? Where have you not trusted in what God is doing? Where are you being consumed by the circumstances of life and not seeing the empty tomb? And remember this story. And then we're going to rejoice together. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness, your grace, your mercy. Thank you for this story that we're part of. Jesus, thank you for ushering in this new creation. 
Thank you for being that once and for all sacrifice to die the death that we all deserve and for rising again. You gave up your life. You took your life up again that you have conquered Satan, sin, and death. Thank you for this new creation we get to be part of. May you use us, God, as a church, as a sent people. Would we realize our identity in you that we get to go and to proclaim this? Like Mary Magdalene, we get to tell the best news ever. So God, would that start even now as we remember through this meal that you've given to us, as we sing songs to you? God, we wanna rejoice in the reality of the resurrection. So God, I pray that you would get your glory and that we as your people would just experience a deep and abiding joy. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.